0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode uh, on my Booktube channel. My name is David Walters, the uh, runner of the blog FanFi Addict, and today I have the Sandman Slim author Richard Kadrey. Richard, how are you doing tonight?
1: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: Good. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, I guess I say tonight. It's uh, it's midday, I guess, for you still, right?
1: Um, It's about 3.30 in the afternoon. Yeah, not too bad.
0: Okay. Have you had a, you had a pretty good day today? Got any writing done?
1: Uh, got yes I did get some writing done in the morning and I'm sort of planning what I do is I sketch out scenes before I write them so it's almost like writing a play i'll sketch out brief sections of action and then a lot of dialogue and then brief sections of action so it's very it's literally a sketch of the thing and the, which allows me then to write the scene quickly okay
0: is it, do you feel like that uh kind of helps you your, in your comic writing as well. Is, is that kind of how you started that process or did it just kind of come to you and then comic books kind of came after?
1: Uh, comics came after, but it, it's interesting. Uh, writing comics and the way I write novels is very similar in that comics are, you know, a fairly, the scripts for comics can be fairly stripped down. They can be very detailed, but they can also be just a couple of sentences of description Leaving the rest to the artist, and then your dialogue, uh, or they can go. You know, if it's a very specific scene, I've gone on for a page about what a certain scene has to look like for a certain effect. Um, and it's the same thing working out working out the book. It can be, you know, a whole chapter in my notes can be, you know, Stark has a sandwich, and then I have to then when I get there, I have to extrapolate everything from. What his mood is, how the sandwich tastes, is it the sandwich he wanted, etc.
0: Do you do you also have to like you talk about how how he puts the sandwich together, and you know, which side does he put mayo on?
1: <laughs> Absolutely, he's not a mayo guy. I don't think Stark's a mayo guy.
0: Oh, okay, is he is he is he more of like a just just no condiment period kind of guy?
1: No, I think I think he likes spicy.
0: Okay, all
1: right. I think he likes spicy. <laughs>
0: I gotcha. Um, so, kind of before we get into the the whole discussion about books uh, and writing itself, I kind of want to go back to the beginning. I want to know who is Richard Kadrey. Uh, you know, what did he do growing up, uh, going through school, and then how did he become a writer?
1: Well, I was born in Brooklyn, moved to Texas when I was a kid. I've been writing all my life. My mom was a reporter for a small newspaper in New York, so I was always around writers. I was always around writing. I was always around the tools of writing. My mother had an electric typewriter, which I loved to play on as a kid. And you know, endless piles of pads and interesting pens and paper, excuse me, pens and pencils. So the tools fascinated me as much as the writing itself. I tried to write my first book. I think I was like five or... No, must have been more like nine. I think I wrote my first book at nine and got about 20 pages into that before it it all kind of fell apart. But so I've been really writing all my life. Uh, I tried to quit a few times over the years because it was very frustrating getting started. I think everybody feels that. And you try to walk away. Just about every writer I know has tried to walk away at some point. But I think what you find out about being a writer to paraphrase or something ursula Le Guin said is that if you're a writer you're more miserable not writing than you are writing and sometimes writing is is incredibly fun and other times it's just the worst thing in the world you're just yanking every word it's like yanking a tooth but then you have great days where it just flies by and it's really fun. Like those days, that's what you live for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've tried several times to, to start novels. I, I've had ideas pop into my head. I'll write about a thousand words. And I feel like I've got a pretty good little prologue and then mm-hmm. it sits and sits and sits. Cause I, I get doing other things, you know, with, cause I've got a full-time job and I've got a new right. one learn and I'm trying to keep up a blog and actually read instead mm-hmm. of writing. And yeah, so you know, I'll just have these ideas that just pile up in a folder and I never go back to it because I always feel I, I tell myself I don't have the time and then I tell myself, well, I have nothing else that I can get to this because
1: I yeah. the idea
0: is there, but now I have no story.
1: Well, I mean, sounds like you have plenty of stuff to do right now, and that's <laughs> a lot of what writing is is taking control of your time. And that it doesn't work in various Points in your life. So if you're going to do the podcast, if you're going to do a blog, if you're going to have a job, that's a lot to handle. So I can see not getting a lot of fiction writing done under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't beat yourself up over it. Um, If down the road some of those things slow down, then you can come back to it. Because, you know, You can write any time. I mean, you don't have to start out when you're 20. You don't start when you're 30. You You can come to writing at any point in your life. I mean, I don't think I wrote a really good word until I was in my late 20s. And even that was pretty wonky when I sold my first novel. That's a pretty wonky book. So I think it was, I don't think I wrote anything really good until Butcher Bird. That's the first book I consider mine.
0: I gotcha. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I hear about you know some authors start their teens, but you know you've got you've got a ton of authors, especially I guess probably in the last decade that probably sell a book at least in their late teens, early twenties, and then you've got some authors that don't even start trying to get published until you know forties, fifties, sixties, and you know some don't even get their first public you know publishing contract until you know they're later on in life, and yep. You know, it, it and yeah, you're right. It's 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 all about, you know, having having the time to, to do it and actually get it done. A lot a lot yeah. of writers I talk to say that they uh, as soon as they wake up in the morning, they start writing, or at least they plan to start writing. Right. Uh, words may not all be there, but at least they you know, start typing stuff out. Uh, um, I heard the other day somebody said that they I think it was Laurel K. Hamilton, she said that she types about all the reasons why she can't write today to mm. get of writing juices flowing and then she can start her day as far as her counter page count which which i found very interesting
1: yeah that's one way to do it um email just writing notes to friends just to get your brain working can always can also be a good way to do it any whatever trick you need to do to get your brain engaged you know um that's that's you have to find your own process that's what it comes down to when i had a full-time job i couldn't write in the morning i'm not a morning person so i'd drag myself out of bed i'd go to work i'd do the do the job and i'd stay late i'd stay for an hour after work when everybody else had gone home and i'd work i'd write at work i would bring my, my laptop and I'd work at the desk for another hour, hour and a half, and then go home because I knew once I went home after a full-time job, I was just gonna collapse. Yeah. So my trick was to just have that full work day and then keep going. And it's the only way I can make myself do anything. And I wrote a lot of I wrote a lot of Butcher Bird. Uh, I began Butcher Bird that way. I wrote a lot of Metrophage that way. Uh, I did a a good chunk of my second novel that uh, was a kind of a disaster called uh, Kamikaze L'Amour. So, you know, it's finding your own time. It's finding your own process. It's, there are no rules to this stuff. There's no rules and there's no timing. So just, you know, make notes, keep all your notebooks. Don't worry about it until you're ready.
0: Yeah, yeah. I thought uh, being able to work from home would help with that. I mean, you know, I had I had a few months before we had our daughter, um, no. and it, like even the reading suffered. It was just like this existential yeah. dread that just kind of hovers over you, and so you're just like, okay, I'll, I'll get the work done, and then I just don't really want to deal with anything else, and I'll turn my brain right. off with you know binging a Netflix series or something. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so yeah, it's just kind of slowly you know continued. But the the last idea I had literally. I woke up at like three in the morning with just this small, just you know, snippet of something. And so I, I grabbed my phone out, got on my notepad, and just typed, you know. And I got about twelve hundred words out at you know three thirty in the morning. Yeah. I was so excited. I was like, I told my wife, you know, when she woke up, I was like, "Are oh, you got to read this and tell me if it's any good?" And she goes, "Okay, it sounds great." And I go, "Now what do I do?" Yeah,
1: because
0: <laughs> I yeah. mean, you just kind of go back into the routine after that. So I'm like, okay, so now. I just need to start waking up at 3.30 in the morning because that's apparently when the juices, at least at that point in time, were So,
1: Well, I think for a lot of people it works that way. It certainly did for me when I was starting out. I th- I'm a big believer in the unconscious helping you with your fiction. So when you're tired, you're not thinking with your rational mind. And that's when a lot of interesting stuff can pop in there. Um, even now, I mean, I've written a ton of books i've written a lot of words if i have a problem with a story if i have a problem with a plot point in a book one of the things i can do honest to god is lie down in the afternoon and take a nap Um, and it's not a real nap it's sort of a twilight sleep it's like you're sort of halfway there but it allows the unconscious part of your brain to wrestle with those questions sometimes and Honest to God, I've had plot holes just just instantly be filled by some goofy little thought or dream or a few words that pop up before or after a nap. Hmm. So don't always just, you know, try to make your rational brain force the words out. You can always, you can always, you know, make your notes and then just keep, just keep your notebooks and let, let it, let it set in your head because sometimes mm-hmm. it just takes a while.
0: Kind of, kind of let it settle and then let it kind of come to you. Uh, I can't even, organically, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah. That's one way to do it. Um, and then, you know, you, you do that and you end up with a deadline and the deadline becomes your organic thing because <laughs> you're looking at the calendar a lot and, yeah. uh, that'll motivate you too.
0: Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> writing without a deadline is like oh, I can just do it tomorrow. You just continue to procrastinate about it. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And, exactly. and I can only imagine
0: how great naps are. I wish. Uh, I uh, my wife tells me I need to take more of them. I'm like, you know, I haven't been a nap person since college because I, I had all the time in the world to nap in college, and now right. you know, I started you know, you know, working as you know as a career. I'm like,
1: yeah,
0: I don't get naps during the week. I mean, weekends maybe, but. Yeah, it just it doesn't work. It doesn't work out anymore. I'm too much of a. She calls me an energizer bunny. I've always got to be doing something. Uh, all right So laying laying down and, and doing shut eyes only at night.
1: <laughs> well, that can work too. You know, keep uh, yeah. keep that pad and the pen by your bed. If you think of something at three thirty in the morning, write it down. You know, again, it's it's about your process, and don't ever think you need to. Follow anybody else's rules. Yeah, just do what you need to do.
0: Yeah, after you know, I've done, gosh, like six around sixty of these chats uh, since mm-hmm. November last year, and that's kind of what I've learned is every single person's process is different. There may yeah. be some pieces that are similar, but I mean, from you know, kind of how you start your morning, whether it's you have to have a cup of coffee or you have to have. Mm-hmm. A certain breakfast to be able to, you know, to to sit down in front of the computer, or I mean, you know, I have several authors I talk to that handwrite everything. Mm-hmm. Um, my mind, I don't, <laughs> I, I hate writing, so so I don't know if I could do that. Um, but it's it's just so crazy because you would think that, you know, after talking to so many people, there'd be a lot of similarities, and there really just aren't. because um, no. every, everybody started differently in the beginning and or they've kind of progressed to something different by the time they hit their second, third, 11th, 12th, you know, book. Uh, And so, you know, some things don't always stay the same.
1: Yeah. I mean, things change too. I I have the last two Sandman Slim books I've mostly written on the, at the computer. So I, I often have big handwritten notebooks for each of the novels. I don't have those for the last two books because for whatever reason, These last two ended up being computer books rather than notebooks. So, you know, even when you've been doing this for a while, your method can change. You have to follow whatever's working for that piece of uh, fiction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So kind of my my next question. I want to know who who kind of inspired you, I guess, to write? Who were some maybe some early inspirations? And do you have any inspirations that maybe, uh, you know, even present day that, that you would say continue to inspire you to write?
1: Well, the first three, I mean, as an adult, the first three writers I can think of would be Robert Stone, the author of Dog Soldiers, William Burroughs, Naked Lunch. And in terms of fantasy and science fiction, Roger Zelazny was a big one. I don't think people talk about him much anymore or talk about him enough. I think he's um, a terrific writer who, yeah, like I said, people don't talk about him enough. He's very literate, very imaginative, very smart, very funny. So he was a, a big deal. I also have to say, when it came to writing, I mean, I started out writing science fiction. And when my agent suggested, maybe I should try fantasy. You know, my first reaction was, I don't write that stuff. I don't read that stuff. I don't like that stuff. Yeah. Then she pointed me to, uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman and it's about Holly Black's work. Um, Holly writes YA, but it's very smart, very, very tight, very adult YA. And then sandman of course is sandman so that was a brilliant thing to run across and you know um my sandman slim has no relation and where i got my sandman the name is sort of an old pulp novel term for a hitman they would call him a sandman because they put you to sleep um I, i've been happy that there's been very little confusion between and Gaiman Sandman in mine. I was afraid at first to use the name but my editor said to take a shot I did and I've been pretty happy and pretty lucky simply about the name itself
0: mm-hmm. I say it seems to be working out pretty well <laughs>
1: yeah so far I mean 12 books in
0: yeah absolutely and, and yeah I mean uh you know Ga- Gaiman's a phenomenal Writer, I, I've yes. loved everything I've, I've read by him. Now, I haven't, I haven't listened to the new audio uh, rendition of Sandman. Have you had a chance to listen to it?
1: I'm not really interested in the audio version. Uh, okay. To me, Sandman is visual. There are certain stories that are visual. There are certain stories that are prose. And to me, Sandman, I'm just not interested in in, in um, doing it like a play. I mean, if if somebody, if somebody I trust tells me it's the best thing ever, I'll give it a shot. But right now it just doesn't, the concept doesn't grab me.
0: I gotcha. Um, all right. Moving on to, to the next little bit. Um, so as far as your writing process, um, you know, you're, we talked a little bit earlier uh, about kind of how you write your scene mm-hmm. and we talked about how it kind of is similar to the way you write comics. Um, how would you say that your process has changed since, uh, you know, day one or book one to now being, you know, about to release book 11 in the same Man's
1: Son series? I started out writing everything by hand. Everything was um, pen, sometimes pencil, on yellow legal pads. I still use yellow legal pads when I have to work by hand. I have a few moleskins and some other notebooks, but for some reason I keep going back to those yellow legal pads. And the transition from writing everything by hand to being able to write anything, originally on a typewriter and now with the computer, it was a long process. It was a process of teaching myself to think and use my body in a different way. And I mean, literally the way words travel through my body. I, I often tell people, if you're having trouble writing, one of the things to do is to change your methods so if you write at the computer start writing by hand if you write by hand start writing at the computer i I, am a firm believer that the physicality of writing is important the way words flow through your body whether you're typing or handwriting um, can be important at different points you may need one technique or the other I only had one technique when I started, and that was handwriting. Now I have two that I can rely on when one doesn't work.
0: Huh? I mean that that that's fantastic. I, I haven't heard that before because you know usually it's just one or the other, and then yeah. eventually somebody will transition from you know a computer to a typewriter or back, you know, vice versa. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't heard of having one kind of as a backup plan in case one, the other's not working out. That's that's really interesting.
1: I, it's nice to have more than one method, and it will save you sometimes for when you you're you're up against the wall and just nothing is working. Always just change your method, even if it means changing what room you're writing in. If you're right in the office, go right in the kitchen for a while. If uh, well, you can't go to a cafe anymore. Uh, when cafes are available again, go right in the cafe. Just change something. Mm-hmm. Change. Don't sit there banging your head against a wall. Change something significant in the way you're working, and it can make a huge difference.
0: Do you, uh, I mean, besides, uh, I guess, like a setting change, do you find that changing anything else about maybe your lifestyle or uh, the way you go about your day uh, helps or hinders? Well, if if you change, if you change maybe the, I don't know, the way you ate, you know, for a week or something. Do you, do you feel like that maybe had, had changed your, you know, the way you wrote or. <laughs> do
1: you, uh, no, nothing like, nothing <laughs> like that. I mean, uh, you know, there are times I need more coffee than others, but that's about the only uh, big change I can think. I mean, you don't want I to, say, eat-
0: we can always
1: use more coffee, <laughs> you know, don't, if you're going to work all day, do not eat a giant lunch. You know, if you're going to have a meatball sub, save it for dinner because, you know, you eat uh, something the size of a cat for lunch and you're just going to you're just going to fall asleep afterwards. So, yeah, uh, in terms of lifestyle things, I'd say uh, have have coffee and a snack in the middle of the day. If you're going to be writing all day, you know, don't don't eat a turkey.
0: Yeah, but I say don't don't eat a big meal or. uh, Yeah have some afternoon
1: cocktails like, uh, like Jimmy says, Um, you know, every now and then I'll, uh, I'll break that rule. Have a, have a cocktail, but, uh, not that often, but sometimes that's again, changing your methods. Sometimes it's like, you know what, if I had a little bourbon right now, maybe that would, uh, change things. But again, you, I, I, I'm, I'm, you don't ever want to associate, you know, uh, liquor or drugs with your writing. And I've, I've had friends get a little stuck on that. So the cocktail thing is very, you know, very seldom, but it's nice to do every now and then it's always nice to break the rules. <laughs> yeah, You know, right? uh, what, you know, whether they're whether they're your rules or somebody else's rules, you gotta, you gotta go in there and smash them up sometimes.
0: Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with the, you know, a finger or two of bourbon every now and then, you know, yep. just- In the middle of the day.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, So uh, kind of before we get into Same Man's Slim, so uh, I want to know about some of your other works. uh, And I know there's uh, been a few comments about uh, some of your other novels as well. Uh, Metrophage. So it was first released in 1988. I know it was re-released a few years ago, but it's your cult classic dystopian cyberpunk tale. So can you uh, tell those of the audience that aren't familiar with it a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, um, cult classic, that's always an amusing thing to hear about your own work. It was my first novel and although I wrote it clear-headed, it reads like someone on speed because at the time, like a lot of people, your first novel, you don't know how to write or you know how to write a book. I've written a bunch of stories, but you don't know how to sit down and write a 100,000 words. And the the thing you're terrified of more than anything else is losing the audience's attention so metrophage starts out fast and literally never slows down like from the first page to the end every single thing is moving all the time and I'm constantly throwing concepts and images and noise and fancy words around it's a very it's a very young man's book it's a very show-off kind of a book Uh, i think it's fun but it really it's something i can look at now and go who the hell wrote this thing because it's kind of crazy but it's it's a book built basically on science fiction cyberpunk and panic sheer sheer panic
0: Okay. So uh, yeah, I like I like how you said that. Uh, you know, you, you look back at it and go, "What in the world did I write?" Yeah, uh, I feel like a lot of authors kind of look back at their first book, and and I mean, granted, a lot of them look back at the ones that they wrote that are never going to see the light of day. And I'm always interested to hear about those. Uh, I'm sure you may have a
1: few. Uh, nope. as well. No, I've you been know? real lucky. I, I've you know, I've, I've 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 been very lucky in terms of like. Books, comics, all those things. Like, I pretty much everything I started, I've sold. So, that first novel, uh, it was my first novel, Metrophage, was the first serious novel I tried, and I sold it. And for, uh, I should actually, I should also mention selling that. I sold to Terry Carr at Ace Books, and that was a long time ago. But Terry Carr had been one of my teachers at the Clarion Writing Workshop. Clarion is a six week writing retreat where students and science fiction writers and editors will coach them on writing. It was very big a long time ago and now it still exists with even better, I think, facilities and teachers. If you're a young writer starting off and you have the time and in some cases the money, uh, although they do have grants, to go do something like Clarion, I really recommend it because it won't teach you how to write, but it'll teach you how to avoid dumb stuff. It's a very quick education on how not to be stupid early on. And that's what helped me. And it also meant I met editor Terry Carr, who, you know, sort of changed my life by buying that first book because I could approach him and say, uh, I didn't really know that many people in science fiction, but I knew him. It's like, hi, Terry, you were one of my teachers. Do you remember me? I have a book. Would you look at it? And he just said, yeah, sure. Send it to me. And four six weeks later, he just called me up and said, yeah, I'm going to buy it. He wow. made me rewrite it. I mean, <laughs> completely. But yeah, he, uh, he bought the thing. So I've been really lucky with that.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you if, if he butchered it and uh, edits. <laughs>
1: He was pretty good. Um, he gave me some really good advice early on, and I followed it. And so, by the time I got to the end of the book, it was it was pretty solid in terms of what he wanted. There were a lot of little changes, but I didn't have to destroy it. Uh, that first that first big pass I made, I, I wrote I wrote it once. I wrote it the second time for him specifically. And then there were just a few little touch-ups, and the book kind of was what it was. And like I said, it's just this mad rush from beginning to end, and it kind of amuses me now how how crazy, and I can see the panic in the words, even though it's it's fun in a lot of ways.
0: I gotcha. I, I, so you, you were saying it's, it's kind of like a young man's novel. It's just a drill and just doesn't stop. You know, it's always... Yeah. Put- on the accelerator
1: Yeah I mean it, it's the kind of book you write when you're young and starting out and I can really I can really see that in the prose and in the style uh, you know a lot of very questionable plot choices that are just there because I don't know how to get from this scene to the other. So let's just have something explode or have somebody kidnap somebody or have somebody hit someone over the head. So a lot of that kind of thing is going on. So yeah there's it's definitely, a first novel and it's a it's a decent one but i think also you know it it suffers from from both my learning to write but also the time and some of what i consider the some of the problems with early cyberpunk especially um a bit of uh i i guess the term is orientalism which is fetishing Um, Asian culture, we were all obsessed with Japan at the time, and I think there was a little bit of that Victorian attitude of, oh, this is so fascinating, let's look at the interesting Asian people, and there's, there's, I I will cop to that, absolutely, there was um, a bit of fetishism there that I'm not happy with, again, that's part of being a young man's book, and a panic book, a panic cheap trick, um, but I see it in other work of that period. I don't think I was alone in that. And I think sci- certainly science fiction and cyberpunk has come a long way since then. Um, I certainly would never write anything like that again.
0: I gotcha. Um, okay, so uh, another, uh, I guess basically your, your newest release up until uh, until the 25th. Um, but uh, your, your alone uh, dark fantasy novel, Grant the Grand Dark.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I wish i had got. I don't know if you can see it. It's it's okay. under my name. <laughs> um, but uh, just uh, those from you know unfamiliar with it as well. Would you mind talking a little bit about it and kind of yeah. you decide to write a dark fantasy novel.
1: Yeah, um, it's very different from anything else I've ever written. It's I've think it's, well, the term we came up with uh, originally when I'd written it was Kafka punk. It's in a sort of fictionalized version of Berlin and Prague in the 20s. It's um, in a city state called Lower Prajava. It's about a young man named Largo Morden, who's a bicycle messenger. And unlike someone like Stark in Sandman Slim, he has no special powers. He's a young 21-year-old guy, a bike messenger with a pretty girlfriend and a lot of drugs. And that's all he wants out of life. So what the book is, it sets out to destroy all of that. It's essentially the Weimar period in Germany, but with genetic engineering and robots and a looming war in the background. It's a strange book because I wanted to write both the story and the world. I'd never written, I guess the term is secondary world no, novel where you completely create a world from scratch. Most of my work takes place in New York or Los Angeles or something like that. Uh, Lower Peshava does not exist. It was fun to create the world. And so one of the things I worked at with my editor was the idea of having the main story but then having little interstitial sections throughout. So there are everything from folk tales to brochures for robots to um, a travel brochure at one point to um, testimonials from ex-soldiers and people like that to expand the world beyond the story and take you deeper into what Lower Prajava was, the people's daily life in this city. And I think it's a a technique I'll, I'll probably try again. It was really a fun way to do sort of two things at once. I didn't want to have a prologue. I didn't want to have an afterward. But I did want to get deeply into the world I'd created and those little interstitial sections with the main story were a really fun way to do it. And I think people have enjoyed it from what I've seen in terms of readers and reviewers.
0: I, I, I still find it funny, you know, when, when you're uh, you were approached to, to write fantasy and, uh, and you were like, Oh, yeah. I do that. And you've kind of come full yet. circle now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. How many years have I been writing Sandman Slim? Over 10 years now, 11 years. I've mostly been writing fantasy. I just sold my first science fiction story in about 12 years to uh, Tor, Tor Tor.com. So that'll be interesting. That was really fun to write science fiction again for a brief moment. I actually have an idea for a science fiction novel. I'll get to that, you know, when I get a chance. But it's nice to have, to be back in that world too. I'd had this science fiction story idea for a long time, and uh, it's sort of my, well, um, it's funny, I I wrote it during a pandemic, and it's a pandemic story I'd had in the back of my head for years, and it wasn't inspired by any particular pandemic, certainly not this one, but... (laughs) It must have been something unconscious, because I couldn't write the thing until we were in the middle of this nonsense right now, mm-hmm. that it all came together, that the actual structure presented itself beyond the simple idea of this road story during in, in a pandemic world. So again, the unconscious can really help you out, and, it, and I think it's a solid story.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm really looking forward to your tour.com novella because uh, they, they put out some great stuff. I've been. they are
1: amazing. A
0: lot of their novellas, you know, for the past couple of years since I started my blog. And uh I actually just finished one by uh, P. Jelly Clark called Ring Shout. uh that one, yeah. Just stunning. It comes out in October. Um, but uh, it's like a historical fiction fantasy novel uh, about this, uh, this group of. Uh, not really mercenaries, but it's, it's in like 1915 after birth of a nation came out mm-hmm. basically fighting back against the Ku Klux Klan, but the members actually happen to be like monsters. So it's almost like a Lovecraft uh, okay. thing, uh, but it's really, really good. So, but yeah, interesting. continue to put out amazing stuff.
1: Uh, yeah. So yeah. Really the novellas out. are kind of becoming my favorite thing right now. Um, I don't, carry books with me when i'm on tour or traveling again i don't travel these days like anybody else but yeah. when i do travel if i want to carry something physical it's going to be one of those it's going to be probably be a novella mm-hmm. um you know if it's not if i'm going to carry if i'm going to read a novel on the road it's going to be something on kindle but if i want to if i want something physical um novellas are great yeah yeah usually
0: usually uh if we go on trips i'll take the kindle and maybe one or two novellas because the same thickness and you can you know take three or four of them and those right. are you can read you know in a sitting or two uh, which yeah. also is nice I feel more accomplished being able to, to read something right. shorter um, so uh kind of going back to the grand dark you're talking about you know adding some extra pieces to kind of bring people more into the world I, yeah. I know some authors have done that as well so, uh, some other fantasy authors uh one in particular his name is named Michael Fletcher mm-hmm. Um, um, a book called Beyond Redemption. And what he did was basically created a you know new, almost like religion and brought mm-hmm. text at the beginning of every chapter. Uh, mm. I kind of gave you even more of like a dose of the world. And he's kind of continued that through his other series. And I've started mm-hmm. more authors uh, take that into account. And I think that's a fantastic uh, little world building piece that, that everybody could do. Uh, yeah. It, it's it you know it can be a sentence it can be a couple of sentences, uh, but I feel like you know you can just continue to you know if you I guess it, as you the, you as the writer if you are kind of stuck somewhere you can kind of go back and maybe pick up a piece from something that you wrote prior uh, you know in those little those small little tidbits and you can add mm-hmm. you know, something else to the story. Well, that's, uh, yeah. that's
1: the other thing, too. Sorry. I did it in Butcher Bird, too. I mean, you have those moments where you the main story might stump you. So you have the opportunity then to think about something interesting in the world. And so you can take a break from the main story, writing the main story, and write one of those little interstitial bits. And that may get you back into the process of the main story again. So it's another way of breaking up your work routine. Is to be able to go back and forth between those two uh, ideas, and in Butcher Bird, I did a similar thing where I had everything from little bits of mythology to even even poetry by a mythological uh, group. So yeah, it was um, it's a, it's a really nice technique. Uh, I think people ought to think about it more. Mm-hmm. You know, you need you need discipline about it like anything else but it can be it can be really helpful and it can really open up your world in a way that you know um more than just stopping the story for endless endless descriptions of things you don't need to you don't need to do that you can keep your story moving put in something uh, a little interstitial bit i can't stand that kind of writing where you just halt everything. I mean, it, it, to me, it's that sort of the worst of Tolkien—that uh, just just halting everything for a bit of bloat. <laughs> In my mind, I'm not—I'm not the biggest Tolkien fan, and I know I'm going to get a tell. lot. Of, I'm probably going to get a lot of Twitter crap and Facebook crap from saying that <laughs> he is very good at some things. He's just—he's not the. Uh, he ain't my cup of tea.
0: He's not he's not the end all be all.
1: No. Yeah. Um he's I read him when I was young and it was interesting and parts of it were exciting. And I got what he was I think I got what he was going for, but I like the Hobbit better. And <laughs> then you tell the story, you get the hell out again.
0: Exactly. Exactly. But then but then they make it into three
1: movies and you're just like, all right. But then they made it into three damn movies. <laughs> horrifying
0: (laughs) yeah i mean i I get what you mean though i I can't stand info dumpy pieces in books and they completely turn me off i mean you sit and go on for you know five pages about one thing and i go all right we we were we were in a giant battle scene and now learning about how somebody's room looks in a palace and I'm, i'm done i you've completely lost me i've got to put it down i'll maybe come back to it later
1: that's the, that's the problem is you hit one of those sections where you know unless the nap unless someone's going to kill somebody with the napkin rings I don't really need to know what the napkin rings are like you know if you're going to describe a banquet I you know it's a real nice banquet really opulent that's great I don't need to know every single detail unless that detail is is important and I think writers and uh again, especially younger writers need to learn that kind of stuff. That's, that's the self-indulgent panic writing. That's the kind of stuff I did in metrophage. I think at times just over describing things to make them stranger for people because I was so afraid if I didn't make it strange in some way or incredibly detailed so that everybody could see every single thing, including the napkin rings that I'd, I'd lose people's interest. So, yeah you learn over time to pace yourself to what's important to figure out what's important in the scene and to leave out all the other crap.
0: Yeah. No, nobody really cares about the sconces
1: unless they're going to go through
0: somebody's you know face
1: or something. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of think, or, or, you know, if they tell something about, you know, the history of the place or are they pretentious sconces? Or are they nice sconces? <laughs> you know, little <laughs> things like that can be great. Um, but there's got to be a damn reason other than running they're know, they're beautiful and they they're really pretty add strong right but the so they're made well,
0: like, of some yeah. elemental metal that's not found anywhere else
1: <laughs> there's got to be a reason there's got to be a reason the thing is there otherwise it's just you know pointless and and, and it, drags everything down
0: it's just adding to word count at that point
1: yeah and that's yeah. um yeah that's you don't need that. Nobody needs that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's fine for your first draft, but it's what you need to cut out. <laughs>
1: to the- well, that's the thing. Uh, put everything in your first draft. That's what a first draft is for. Put in every single idea, every <laughs> dumb thing you you want in the story. And then mm-hmm. that's, then the magic of the second draft is you can figure out what's important. Yeah. But yeah, make your first draft as self-indulgent as you want. Absolutely put in everything and then between you uh between your thoughts and the editor's thoughts you can figure out what needs to be in there and what needs to uh go out and in fact you may worry about the napkin rings and the editor may say you know what you left out the fork and the fork's more important <laughs> so talk more about the damn forks
0: right yeah uh cut, cut the fluff and talk about the forks <laughs> yeah Um, All right, so you're sitting at book 11 now of your popular Slim series. It's called Ballistic Kiss, and it's the volume of Slim's art. So, for those unfamiliar, can you give us a glimpse as to how we got here? Well, a decade plus worth, but
1: yeah, uh, slim it down.
0: No pun intended.
1: uh, Here's here's 11 books worth of uh, synopsis (laughs) for you. Sandman Slim is a a man named James Stark. He was a very powerful magician in Los Angeles who who was in a magical circle with seven other people. One of the other people, Mason Fame, was jealous of him and wanted his own power and made a deal to send Stark to hell for power, to get power for himself. So Stark spent 11 years in hell as a living person and was everyone's punching bag for a while. But while he was down there, he realized that there was something strange about him that in fact, all the times he should have died, he didn't. And the phrases he uses now, once he was once he escaped from hell is I'm just hard to kill. And he didn't know why for a long, long time. Um, it turns out that he, again, this is where we're going, like uh, how much of a spoiler do we want here? He's hard to kill and there's a reason for it. Let's just say that. Um, he's still a powerful magician. And over the course of the 11 books, he really, the 11, it's interesting to talk about 11 books. 12th book will be the end. It's really two arcs of six books. That's the way I pitched it. So the first six books are really stark coming to terms with who he is. <clears throat> Excuse me. And dealing with the world of gods and devils, what heaven is, what hell is, the nature of both of those things. Uh, I never intended God to be a character in the books. And what do you know? God became a major character uh, partway through the series. So the first six books are about Stark. I'm just gonna say the damn thing. He's a Nephilim. All right, yeah, I gave that away having to deal with both his own identity and the nature of the universe, finding out who that Lucifer, the devil, isn't who he thought he was. God is not who he thought he was. The world isn't what he thought it was. The universe, the whole structure of the universe isn't what he or anybody else thought it was. And then having to deal, cope with that and cope with the old gods who are really pissed off about the new ones. And that's sort of the first arc. Um, the second arc of six books is much more grounded in the real world. The seventh book deals a lot with, um, well, ironically, it deals with fascism. It deals with fascist groups in L.A., um, many of which that are in the book are based on real groups back in the 30s. I a, L.A. is a great place for twisted history. There was a group called the Silver Shirts in L.A. that was created the same week. They're really the same day that Hitler became chancellor of Germany. And what's interesting about the Silver Shirts and the version of them I used in the book is that because it's L.A. and we also have to have crazy stuff with our fascism. They were spiritual crazy fascists. They had secret teachings. Um. were that were talked to them because the head of this fascist movement was spoken to by you know um, um, secret masters of the universe so you have fascism plus la religious craziness and we start there and we uh, move through stark's life to the point where stark is murdered and that changes everything in his life. Stark is literally murdered. He is disembodied. He is in hell for a year. And the last few books are about Stark coming back from that. Stark being brought back to, brought back to life by an evil consortium and being given a, an ultimatum work for them or be dead forever. And so he throws in with them for a while. He's blackmailed into if he wants to stay on earth and get back with the people he loves, he has to work for some very bad people for a while and the consequences of that. And because of that year he lost in his life, it changed everything. And that's what the last couple of books are about, of him coming back, still having to fight the same supernatural battles he fought before, but now from a position where His lover is gone. Um, His uh, some of his friends are different now. Literally where he used to live is gone. He has to find out. He has to find a place literally to go to sleep at night. He gets lucky with a few of those things, but. The last couple of books, those last couple deal with him rebuilding himself. The whole series is about the rehabilitation of a monster. Stark in the first book is Stark Stark raving crazy. And he is a monster who wants nothing more than to get revenge on the people who sent him to hell. And if he can destroy the world along the way, he'll do that too. What the rest of the series has been about is rehumanizing Stark and putting him in touch with the world. Now when he went to hell, he lost everything again. And he's having to rehumanize himself one more time. He finds a new lover, he finds new friends, he finds a new place to live. He tries to walk away from his life as someone who fights monsters, but it keeps calling him back. And Ballistic Kiss gets into a lot of new areas. The 11th book that's about to come out, Stark is very reluctantly drawn into a murder mystery and a ghost story at the same time. The murder mystery has to do with a missing angel who was last seen at the Pussycat Porn Theater on Hollywood Boulevard back in the 70s. Stark is asked to find her. Stark says, no, <laughs> I'm not interested in doing that. But through various reasons, he ends up trying to solve the murder of an act, a B actor from the same period. And solving one mystery throws him right back into the second one. And so as much as he tries to walk away from the world of the supernatural, walk away from the world of gods and angels, he keeps being drawn back into it, partly because it's how his life works, partly because how existence works for someone like him. He just can't walk away as much as he tries. Book 12 that I'm writing now is the culmination of all that work where Stark has to confront everything all over again. The 12th book goes back to the first book in terms of story and structure. Things that seemed one way in this, over the course of the series, we're gonna find out are actually in reality very different. And book 11, Ballistic Kiss, is gonna set a lot of that stuff up. And I hope people enjoy it. There's a lot of new stuff in there for for Stark his new lover isn't like anyone he's gone out with before his life is a bit more serious but a bit a bit more human it's a, it's it's his most human book of the series he has to deal with things he never he never uh, had to before and God he hates dealing with feelings and emotions but he's dragged into them by having this new lover by having to ha- save his friends and by having Having to deal with ghosts and people whose lives were destroyed and are and are dead now but still lost. So that's what ballistic kiss is. It's ghosts, it's sorrow, but it's also funny and there's a lot of action. Stark is always has a has a dark sense of humor that's always going to come through, no matter how serious the story or the circumstances are. He has the, the sense of humor of an EMT or a, a cop who's been on the force too long. Very dark, very sardonic, but always funny.
0: Yeah, very hard, hard boiled,
1: <laughs> hard boiled kind of humor. Yeah. yeah. If you've been through enough, you find that stuff. You know, um, we've all had those bad moments in our life. We've all had those rough patches. And, you know, it's what you do with that stuff. And if you can find humor in it, It can can help keep you human, even though for the people outside it, when they see that dark humor, it can can scare the hell out of them. Mm -hmm. But for you on the inside, anytime you can you can find humor in the most horrible situations, it's it's a way to cling to your humanity.
0: Mm -hmm. So um, uh, since you kind of brought it up, I've, I've got a branch off question to my next one. Sure. You said that you sold the series as two six book arcs. So was that always the plan or did you write, you know, the first book, not really knowing what direction you wanted to go in?
1: Well, I first, I sold the first three as a package, as, as a trilogy. I knew I had a larger story I wanted to tell. And I got very lucky because Sandman Slim came out at a time when urban fantasy was really taking off. So You know, I had a lucky career moment there. I mean, Mm. talking straight up about business, business counts. I got lucky. I had the right book at the right place at the right time. I was able to sell a trilogy, and then I was able to sell a second trilogy. And that completed that that large arc I wanted to do. Once we did those, I was able to talk them into letting me do the second half of the, the 12 books I wanted to do. So I'm happy, I'm both happy and sad to end the series. You know, it's been 12 books and I've lived with these characters for a long time. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, I'm very sorry not to be with them longer, but at the same time, I know where this is going and I know that the characters are gonna go through some interesting stuff and it's going to, they're gonna come out of it stronger and better, except for the ones who die. know, <laughs> well, In their own way, they'll be stronger and better too. There you go. No, and dying in the books is the, the nature of death in the books has changed over 12 books too. And I'm not going to tell you what that means, but what death is and how death works has significantly changed, um, in this world that I've created.
0: Okay. Yeah. You, you kind of answered my second part. I was going to say, you know, considering book 12 is your, is your final volume in the series. I was going to ask you if you, if you felt like the, the run was, was over, like it's run its course, or do you think there's. You know more in the tank for maybe not this you know this arc, but maybe a spinoff, or are you going to write some shorter stories within? Mm -hmm. You've written one short story in the series. Um, If you if you had any more short stories, you were going to throw out kind of to branch some of the other books together.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's always the possibility of a spinoff series. But really, what I want to do when the novels are done is I have a series of short stories I want to write about some of the other characters. I mean, I want to I want to give Stark a break. So there's a story I want to write about Candy. There's a story I want to write about Alegra. There's a story I want to write about Vidocq. So I want to give the sort of the other people their voices mm-hmm. um, as much as possible so yeah uh, i definitely want to do some stories there's been talk about doing a comic you know when when the damn film happens um that's a possibility too that might be a place for the stories or i might just do them as prose. well you know again we're, we're it's so frustrating you're, you're, you're trying to think as uh someone who's a, a creator an artist and then business sort of keeps kicking you in the head like uh so yeah, you have to you have to think in terms of like, well, am I going to write a story? Or am I going to write a comic? And which makes the most sense right now? And you also have business people talking at you, like uh, you know, uh, movie people and things like that. So it will happen, and it's just a question of the form in which it will happen.
0: But I yeah. really have a,
1: but I really want to write those stories. I have a really interesting Candy story that I want to do because it really gets into who Candy and the Jades are. Because I've never quite gotten deep, deep enough into who the Jades are, where they came from, and what's their real nature. Um, again, that's one of those things I could have thrown in a book, but it would have stopped the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather just give Candy her own separate story and let her, you know, not just basically it's Candy without Stark getting into her world by herself, not needing.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I like those uh, Type little anthologies uh, Where you kind of branch out And give everybody mm-hmm. their own uh, I've seen it done a few times I mean, in, yeah. in fantasy, and I, I don't know Where else <laughs> where else I've seen it, but uh, You know, like Mark right. Warren won for his Broken Empire trilogy, and uh, I know A few other others that have talked about doing The same, because, you know, they Are like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of tired of Writing about this character, but, you know, with All these other people, I, I feel like I've got to do Something, and if it's right writing 25 or 30 pages per character and just stone it all in one book, you know, why not? Uh, and so I think that, that'd be a fantastic little addition uh, to your series, especially for your, you know, your, your giant fan base. So, and I, was, <laughs> I was going to say this question, but, uh, and I've seen sure. some comment about it, but you know, Chad Stahelski of John Wick fame uh, is, or I guess it has been somewhat, talking, you know, directing the movie. I mean, I, how, how is that going? I mean, I know it's been a few years kind of in the making and you you kind of mentioned, you know, business people talking actually about the film. Is it yeah. still kind of in production? Is it still in
1: talks or? Well, here, here here's the great part about Hollywood. I can't talk about it. Figured. <laughs> that, that's what Hollywood is right now. Um, Hollywood's like the CIA sometimes and you just, you have secrets and if you talk about them, you'll get shot in the back of the head. So right now I've got a gun at my head and I'm not gonna talk about it.
0: I gotcha. Yeah, or you know, we just won't hear from Richard Kadrey again.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I gotta finish the book before I get shot in the head. That's the There deal. you go.
0: Yeah. You you got it. you gotta get all twelve books done
1: and then you know, we'll see. And then they can shoot and then they can shoot me. Then yeah, it's There
0: good. you go. <laughs> It'll be an interesting way to go out, right? Yeah, right um okay so uh last question um kind of big i guess writing question but it really more has to do with the physical books themselves so your your book covers are are very original compared to a lot of others out there um they are kind of like movie poster like artwork um was that a decision that was made like unanimously did you have a part in that was that just your you know publisher going we want to go in a different direction because i know Mm -hmm. The cover started in a certain way, and mm-hmm. then just kind of fell into this this poster like yeah um, work scheme. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, that they uh, so we had a great idea to instead of just doing regular book covers to sort of because the 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 there's the a very seventies aesthetic to the books, which is all completely delivered. It's a very uh, Stark is obsessed with movies, especially during that period. So the idea to make. The book covers into sort of B movie posters was I thought a great one, and that was uh, that was from the British publisher. Uh, the designers over in England uh, came up with that idea, and I, th- I thought it was brilliant the first time I saw it. So the whole series now has those B movie covers, and you know I have to thank uh, I have to thank the Brits for that. That was uh, that was their idea, and. We uh, we loved it over here, so we ran with it.
0: Okay, yeah, I, I just you know kind of noticed it. You know, if you sit there and scroll through them, you, you'll see. You know, obviously, some of the earlier novels have several different covers depending on what mm-hmm. you're in, and then if they're you know republished in, in ebook, they've got a different cover. Uh, yeah. but you know, some of the some of the newer ones have kind of stayed the same. Uh, yeah. You know, as far as this movie push, I thought that was a really neat.
1: Uh, a little deal you had so all the uh, the early books that didn't have the uh that didn't have the movie poster covers all the trade paperbacks now have those movie posters so if you bought um the newer hardbacks and the older trade paperbacks of the first few books you're going to get all the movie poster versions
0: yeah yeah i, I, I have seen uh cuz you know you have to you have to kind of scroll through the different <laughs> different formats to to find the one that you want because they right there's probably your know, three or four different ones, depending on you know where you're at. So that's I just thought that was really neat. I thought I'd throw that out there. So
1: Harper, I have to say, um, Harper Collins, uh, Harper Voyager, my imprint, has been very, very good about consulting me, keeping me as part of the cover process. What are you know? What are my ideas? What I th- what do I think are the key points of the book or key images in the book? That they can work with to create covers. And they've been really very, very kind about that because a lot of writers get shut out of that process. So mm-hmm. they've been very good about treating me well in terms of both cover consultation and voice actors for audiobooks, things like that. So it's been a really great relationship in that way.
0: If you listen to any of your audiobooks, I know a lot of authors hate listening to their words being read back to them.
1: Bits and pieces. McLeod's a great reader, um, But I really can't get through much more than the five minute preview on audible.com <laughs> um, because it's, it's my own words coming at me and it's very, you know, in the same way, I don't want to go back and read my old work. It's, it's, it's right. strange hearing my own, uh, hearing my own stuff spoken aloud too. But I'll tell you what, man, when I'm on tour, I have to read my own stuff. McLeod's um, a hell of a lot better uh reading my stuff than I ever will be.
0: But so you you're just, just like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna play this audio sample from. <laughs> from-
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Thought I thought of that. I'm not I'm, gonna read for you guys. I honestly, I thought of that a couple of times. Just bringing a boombox with me and just playing the audio book <laughs> for a while. <laughs> you might and be the Oliver, author Oliver that does Wyman, that. who does Oliver Wyman who did the um, the the Coop series for me. Another great reader. Who I think did a did a terrific job with it. I've been again very lucky with all of my audio books. Um, really talented people, and Harper kept me in the loop in all of them.
0: That's awesome. All right, so uh, last last question I have for you, and it's this is this is all all about book recommendations. Are there any right. books read recently, or maybe not even recently, but you just feel need more readership?
1: Yeah. I'm actually calling up some right now because I always forget these things. So give me a second here. Oh, you're good. Um, I'm actually, because I always brain freeze when people ask me, what's a great new book. Um, (laughs) well a novella, we're talking about those, uh, hammers on bone by Cassandra Kaw is a really good one. Um, a book I'm reading now, uh, by, uh, Stephen Graham, um, I'm sitting here even looking at it. Stephen Graham Jones, um, The Only Good Indians is just, just phenomenal. So I really, um, I really recommend that one. And I'm looking at some other ones on my Kindle. Um, Well, again, I talked about Selazny earlier. Um, His Lord of Light, Jack of Shadows, some of those books are really brilliant. Um, cipher by Kathy Koja is another terrific one. Um, what else have I been looking at? It's funny. I've been looking at a lot of older stuff recently and nonfiction stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what's I've been, I've been reading old Clive Barker a bit. Mm-hmm. Just, just learning his prose style. Cause I think there's a lot to unpack there. I admire the way he puts things together. So looking at uh, a short piece like Cabal um, or The Damnation Game has been really interesting. But um, let's see, I have a couple of novellas over here. Let me take a quick look.
0: You're good. (laughs) And Cassandra, I agree with you. Mongrels is freaking amazing. Anything by Stephen Graham Jones needs to be read.
1: Um,
0: Cass- Cassandra was just talk- telling uh, telling everybody about Mongrels by by Jones as well. Stephen Graham Jones. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: Stephen Graham Jones. I've like, read man, everything by true. him. He Mongols is so good. Is terrific. Mongrels is like the best werewolf thing I think I've read. Um, Martha Wells, you know that's a terrific book. Um, a non-science fiction fantasy book uh, I, I recommend that Mallory Almira, who wrote The Lady from the Black Lagoon recommended to me, is um, I'm Thinking of Ending Things by uh, Ian Reed.
0: Ian Reid, yeah.
1: Which is a really interesting book. And I'm, I'm reading Paul Tremblay. Um, I don't, I haven't read Survivor Song yet, I have that. But um, the, uh, the Cabin at the End of the World is a pretty phenomenal book. And actually there's another Stephen Graham Jones I have that I'm just about to get to um, that's been highly recommended is The Least of My Scars. Um, Jones is really, I'm, I'm really happy that his new book has really taken off. because mm-hmm. he uh, And he's a really good writer for that kind of stuff because he has a ton of backlist. So you can, he has a million stories out. He has novellas. He has uh, other books out. So if you like The Only Good Indians, you're in for a treat because he has a lot of work out right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, pretty much every book you named, I, I've read and just absolutely devoured. Uh, right. the only Good Indians was like my second favorite book last year, only behind Blake Crouch's Recursion. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I say last year. I mean, it just came out like right, the, right. I, I a month ago. I got a super early copy of it, and it was just mind-blowingly good. Um, and his Mapping the Interior, which is also a tour.com notebook That's
1: a great. That's is great. amazing.
0: Uh, I story. mean, every, everything I've read by him, though, is, is phenomenal. He's got a new one, uh, a new tornado, novella coming out uh, next month called Night of the Mannequins.
1: Yeah, I have that on order. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I haven't seen that one yet. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, um, and let's see. What else? Uh, you're oh, there's another one. Um, Marlon James, uh, Black Leopard, Red Wolf is a really interesting fantasy that I recommend to people.
0: Okay, I need to read that one. That, that's that that one's been on my list for a while. Um, yeah. But you mentioned uh, you mentioned Tremblay. Yeah, I think Survivor Song is probably his best novel yet. I really enjoyed oh, Great Thin, which was his anthology that came out last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Survivor Song is is amazing. I know, and I know uh, Stephen King was was tweeting about it. I think yesterday. Yeah,
1: I just saw that. That's that's that that's not too bad, man
0: yeah yeah he, he he and paul must like be pen pals because i feel like every time he comes out with a new book king tweets about it
1: so um, well it's nice you know i mean sometimes people get a little um, you know kind of pissy about like well you writers are always recommending each other's books you know and it's like well i know a lot of good writers i'm going to recommend yeah. their books and sometimes they recommend mine but um you know, that's just the way it is. I don't know. I don't know any bad writers. <laughs> I mean, if, so you, did, I'm really, if you I'm really, I'm lucky in that all my friends are really good. So if someone sends me something, chances are uh, I'm, I'm gonna like it. Um, oh, and another book. I guess it's gotten a, a lot of play is um, that came out of nowhere last year. Um, I knew Chuck Wendig was working on a big book at one point, and Wanderers just sort of landed yes. on my doorstep and I really highly recommend that it's a big damn book yeah yeah I say, it, l- it
0: landed on your doorstep and you couldn't open your door
1: <laughs> yeah yeah man yeah. um like I said I knew he was working on a big one I did not know how big so that's a that's a really uh that's a really good one to look at and I'm really waiting for tasman Muir's new book um Harold the ninth because I love Gideon
0: yeah yeah I've uh I think I've got the audio
1: for- I think I'm- I, Did I miss my name Yeah, sorry, sorry <laughs> I think I you're that. right.
0: <laughs> I think I think you're right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Gideon was was definitely a different book, and I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, one of my co-blockers read Harrow uh, earlier this year and really really enjoyed it. So I'm
1: looking. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to that one. Uh, but
0: yeah, I agree on
1: Wanderers.
0: Uh, I read it last year and actually had a chance to meet Chuck uh, at a at a book me- or book meeting. What am I talking about? I don't even, I don't even know what these things are called anymore. Uh, book signing. Uh, right. Georgia, uh, where he was signing about wonders, and I literally was the only person that had read the book there because I got it early. So hearing everybody go, "Can you tell us about the book?" I'm like, "I can tell you everything really about the book." You know? Right, right. It's it's different, but um, yeah. I was when you said Clive Barker, I thought you were going to say the books of blood because you know he's got a, a Hulu series uh, based on that coming out. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and then Ian reed has got the Netflix movie for "I'm Thinking of Ending Things."
1: Uh, coming out here. yeah that's, that's really great I, I'll be really curious to see I think um um Charlie Kaufman I think did it and I think it's an interesting combination so I'll be really curious to see how that that uh, how that translates and I hope yeah, I'm
0: interested to see if he pulls it off because that because that book is 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 a trip
1: <laughs> it really is I mean it, it, you think um, you think you're reading one book I and mean, then it's like whoa what the hell just happened here yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I, I find that really fun. I mean, I know that annoys some people. It's mm-hmm. like the movie Something Wild. That's just this, you know, it's a—it's an old Jonathan Demi movie that is this goofy kind of 80s romantic comedy. And then all of a sudden it takes this wild left turn and gets darker and darker. And it really upsets some people. But I just thought it was a brilliant move. And I think same thing with uh, I'm thinking of ending things.
0: Yeah, yeah, you you can definitely tell by like the reviews that they're very mixed. You either really, really love it or you just hate it. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I was, and I was in the love it camp. I I, I wanted to read it because I wanted to know. I was like, why? Why are the the reviews like so mixed? And You know, yes. why are you sitting at you know two and a half stars.
1: And I read it and they go, oh, that's why. <laughs> yeah,
0: but, but oh, it, oh, it was like right up right right my there. alley.
1: That's the thing right there where that where it started losing stars for those kind of people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I always uh, have to at least give a shot to, you know, books like that that have, you know, hundreds of thousands of reviews. And I go, there's got to be something to it. So let me see what it's about. And you know, right. it turns you off or or you're all about it. And that was one that that I just absolutely loved. And I, read it, I think I read it in a sitting because it's a pretty short book.
1: So. It's a short book, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. It's fun with the novellas, but um, yeah, it, it's a it's a bit longer than a novella, but you can read it in a couple of sittings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Richard, I man, I have I have had a blast talking with you, and, and I really. Oh, thank you. Uh, you coming on and, and talking about, I mean, just the love of books. I mean, it's it's been, especially this last little bit. I mean, it's, it's always nice when when re- people recommend books that I've read because I can actually kind of gush over it with you.
1: Ah,
0: good. Uh, a lot of times it's like, oh, I've just read nonfiction. I don't read a whole lot of nonfiction. So, um but uh yeah. but it's just been great having you on and uh, you. checking out. I know that uh, most of you have read Sam and Slim and probably read it up to this point, but Ballistic Kiss comes out the twenty fifth of this month. Uh, Again, it's book eleven in the series, the penultimate in the series. And book twelve will be out next year. You have a working title on it yet?
1: I do, but I can't say it because Mm -hmm. again, (laughs) it might change, and my editor will smack me if I say (laughs) the one I have now, and it and and it turns out to be something different. So uh, I gotcha. Okay. No, it's it's it will be a. Short, punchy title because Stark books always have short, punchy titles.
0: We'll say untitled, same Slim Number Twelve. How about that?
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's always worth asking, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks again, Richard. Uh, hope you have a great rest of your week. Hope the uh,
1: Thank
0: you. Hope pub day goes well for you. Just just a, you know, about thirteen days from now, and uh, yep. maybe we can do this again uh, once Book Twelve gets here, and maybe even beyond.
1: Sure, that'd be great, and uh, have awesome. a good time. Thank you.
0: Absolutely, and
1: uh, enjoyed it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, take care. Bye bye. Thanks, Richard.